all you beautiful people and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. I pray that you're settling down into a new rhythm of school being back in session and hopefully you're enjoying a little bit of structure to your life because of that transition. I know that I am. Summer for us is not a big touring season with music, so I find myself being able to be home and truly have what feels like a summer break along with our kids. So in some ways, the fall season feels like I'm kind of unzipping this cocoon that I've been in for a few months because summer is just where I really do pull back on all fronts, social media, touring, meetings, business-related ventures, and I really allow myself to rest and retreat and recover. I know for many of you moms with young children, that sounds like the exact opposite of the summer you just lived. (laughs) Well, I promise I'm here to tell you that you'll get there. Kids do grow up and they eventually can not only brush their teeth and get themselves dressed and actually look really pulled together, um, but they can also make themselves breakfast and lunch and they can do the dishes. My kids even prefer doing their own laundry. So you'll get there. That's not to say that I don't still make them breakfast and lunch, but sometimes I kid you not, they just prefer to make it themselves. And I'm happy that they not only have those skills, but they enjoy using them. For some of you, the fall season is where you might find some time for yourself during the day. And I wanna encourage you to do that as you're getting your head and your heart around some of these new rhythms. I love to think that even as fall approaches and we're figuring out what we're doing in terms of structure, What if we choose to put who we are becoming before what we're doing? Even if you just start out by spending 15 minutes of your morning to just sit with God in His Word. I put this in the category of prioritizing who you're becoming. It's sowing into the things of the Spirit and even valuing the unseen, which we know from Scripture is what is eternal. That's 2 Corinthians 4.18. So as you prioritize sitting with God each morning, Try to extend that time to 20 minutes and then more beyond that. The hope is that you open up His Word. If you don't know where to start, the Psalms are a great place as we've been remembering together these past few weeks. But as you read, ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal His Word to you. And then open up your heart to Him and your life. Welcome Him into your home, your car, your day. Consecrate what you're gonna be doing to Him today. Offer it to Him. Invite him to show you where he's working in your life today. If you think of any ways that you've blown it in the last 24 hours, I know that I can. If that comes to mind and your heart feels a sense of sorrow for that, confess it to him. He does not have a voice of shame. His kindness is what brings us to repentance. Any shame that comes against you is from the enemy, the accuser. And the best way to silence shame and the voice of the enemy is to yield or submit to God. That's James 4, 7. And true confession and repentance silences the shame. It silences the accuser. When we own what we need to own before a loving God, it brings everything into the light and shame loses its power over us. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 says something very similar. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You can almost hear a rhythm or order in that passage, can't you? Come humbly before the Lord each morning. Cast your cares and all your anxieties on Him. So think about that 15 to 20 minutes that you're doing this. Just come quiet and humble before Him. Cast your cares, anything that is agitating you or worrying you. He said that we can literally throw it on Him. Be sober-minded and watchful. That just means stay awake to and not numbed out to the things that are going on around you and how the enemy might be seeking to discourage you today. Know deep down that you are not alone in the things you are going through. There are believers all over the world who are experiencing the same kind of trials you are. And though you might suffer for a little while, how amazing is it? that it says like a season of consolation from God himself will come where he will restore us again. He will confirm and strengthen us. Our Psalm today is Psalm 27. This is a Psalm that is very near and dear to my heart. The very first song actually that Nathan and I wrote together was called, You Are My Stronghold. And it remains a moment in my life where I certainly learned to start singing to God even in the most painful seasons of my life. I shared with you guys on Patreon that I'm going to be writing a book over the next several months or a year. I have no idea how long it will be taking me, but I got to go do that book mapping that I told you about, which is just getting to sit with some people who are trained in spiritual formation, and they were able to help me map out my entire book. And that process was really like being pastored for two days straight, which was amazing. The second day, I cried almost the whole time. (laughs) One of the things that you do is you write out the storyline of your entire life. And I had never done anything like that before. And it was one of the most healing things that I'd ever done, especially to have someone help you see the themes threaded through, like I talk about a lot. But through your entire life, even starting from when you were really, really young, Things that you maybe didn't even know were connected are suddenly connected, and you find that there's been a central theme and plot line since you were very little. All in all, there are what are called seasons of consolation. We kind of got to that point where I talked about it seemed like we just went through this time of life where we got to enjoy the fruit of the season before. And for the most part, there was just peace and contentment and favor. I learned that that's called a season of consolation. Other seasons, however, as we all well know, are full of hardship and the pain of pruning, which is a thing that we've talked about a lot. In John 16, Jesus assures us that these seasons will come, doesn't he? He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So whether we invite it or not, Seasons of trial and frustration and even deep pain are inevitable. I think some of the things that surprised me in my storyline were places I could see where I possibly invited hardship in 
and places where hardship came, and I couldn't really see any correlation other than what God just wanted to teach me through it all. In high school, there were seasons where I could clearly see that I had invited hardship in by sort of just going along with the crowd and acting a certain way at school and with school friends that was different than when I was at church and with church friends. And then when I did an about face and I really started walking towards Jesus wholeheartedly, many of my friends basically ditched me and backed a few very close friends, and one in particular not only ditched me, but they went out of their way to make sure that I felt unwelcomed at school, calling me names that I won't say out loud, <laughs> and getting other people to share in their disdain for me. And in many ways, even then, I knew that I had brought it on myself. It was clearly consequences of leading a double life, being double-minded like James talks about in the book of James. He says in chapter 1 that a double-minded man is unstable in all he does. Double-minded means unsteady, wavering in both character and feelings. Jesus also talked about this kind of person in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. I remember my sophomore year being the year that I realized that I had to make a choice. I was growing up in my faith and my understanding for the first time that I was going to have to make choices. Of course, I wanted the happy ending where all my friends accepted me after I did the right thing. I think we all know that high school doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Alliances are formed, and someone usually ends up on the outs if they don't align. Well, fast forward to my adult years, and the plot lines just get more complicated, don't they, for all of us. We think a relationship is going one way, and suddenly we are broadsided with weirdness coming from the people that we love, and we don't understand or have any reference for what went wrong. However, the last episode, we did dive into idolatry, didn't we? Making people and things idols in our lives. I will say that that didn't happen overnight in my life. It was such an incredibly slow and subtle drift into a place where I had elevated people's opinions and whisperings above the whisperings of God. This, through a very backdoor approach, invited hardship in. But it's especially hard, isn't it? When you don't believe that you personally really did anything intentional to bring on what you're experiencing, you really do feel deep down that you're in the right, not pridefully by any means, but you just don't understand how it happened. I can look back and see the brokenness surrounding those types of hardships for sure, and I can also see how my response wasn't always the most loving response. My personality is definitely, you know, pull back in times of conflict. I'm not confrontational by any means, but the older I have gotten, I understand more and more how important it is to lovingly have face-to-face conversations with people through hard things. I just got to teach at a gathering the other day at our church called The Table. It's for moms. It's here in Franklin, and we're studying the fruit of the Spirit. I got to teach on love. And one of the things that I shared was how love, when we are living from the bullseye that I've talked about so much, meaning receiving God's love over our own soul, His love covering our longings, our expectations, our desires, and deepest needs, 
It allows us to then truly release the people around us from having to supply those things for us. And we're able to see people for the gift that they really are to us for the first time, maybe. And you're able to separate their own journey with God and their own warfare, honestly, from your own. I've told you about the Ransomed Heart app several times that John and Stacy Eldridge have put out, and there's prayers on there that I love to pray, and one of them is called the Daily Prayer. And part of that prayer says, I bring the full work of Christ between me and every person, and I allow only the love of God and the Spirit of God between us. In the bedtime prayer, you pray a little deeper into that, basically in so many words, praying that all people that you've come in contact with that day or people who are even up close and personal in your life would be bound back to the work of Christ in their own lives. This doesn't mean that we don't help carry the people that we love and their burdens, obviously. We just keep releasing them back to Jesus, putting them back in His hands and praying His full work between us so that only His love remains. That's the part I love. So even in parenting and in my marriage today, I want the love of God to reign and shine in those relationships, to be the thing that remains at the end of the day. This is being disciplined to receive the love of God and everything we need from God so that we can be free to release people to Him as well. I don't need to fulfill anyone else's deepest longings today either. That releases me. Ultimately, my children, especially at the ages they are, this is really where I've got to start modeling what it looks like to run to the stronghold that is Jesus in every situation. So I'm going to read Psalm 27 over us today. Before I read it, maybe press pause if you need to and ask the Spirit of God to really speak in. Maybe even ask Him to help you recall a hardship that you've walked through. Maybe it's right upon you, though. It's not hard to recall at all. You might be knee-deep in it. But out of all the stuff you're going to hear me say today, these words are the most important. These words I'm about to read are the only words that I can truly say today are the word of the Lord over you. His word is perfect. It's faultless. It's flawless in every way. So as I read, sit or stand or walk in the power and the perfection of His Word over you now. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. 
Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, or false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I'm so grateful today for the transformative Word of God. This is a Psalm of David. As we know, David did not live a perfect life. He certainly had seasons of his life where he invited hardship in because of sin. The overarching theme of David's life, though, was that he was a man after God's own heart. But as I've mentioned before, to be one after God's own heart usually means that you're enrolled in what Gene Edwards calls the school of brokenness in his book, The Tale of Three Kings. As we've talked about before, many of the Psalms are David's lament. David was anointed king during a time that he was just a young shepherd boy spending his days in the fields. But because the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, seeking to show himself strong to those whose hearts are postured towards him, that's 2 Chronicles 16.9, he always knows where to find us. This gives us hope that we're free to be about what He's called us to in any season because He will find us. He'll call us out. This is what happened to David. Soon David found himself at King Saul's service, doing what he did in the fields, which was sing. He was asked to come and sing over King Saul because David had a beautiful voice and it apparently soothed Saul. As things progressed, Saul senses David's anointing and leadership. And a jealousy and a hatred builds in Saul to the point of literally hunting David like a dog. David found himself the target of Saul's spears, both figuratively and literally. David spent many a night hiding in caves, which is where many of the Psalms were written. I've shared about this many times before, but you might have a cave song being written in your heart even now. A cave song happens when we're bringing our wounds to the Lord in the secret place and letting Him minister to us, all the while we lift our voice in praise and let it echo off the walls into our own soul so that we preach to ourselves through our pain. Psalm 27 is no exception. David sings, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I don't know if David was in a cave when he wrote Psalm 27 in particular, but knowing he had at least spent many days and nights in caves, I love the imagery that he chose just right off the bat and singing that the Lord is his light. I think about the darkness of a cave. I think about light illuminating just that current place of darkness and hardship. But I also think it's beautiful, you know, For a light to come into a cave, it also illuminates the cave entrance, doesn't it? So when it's time to leave, when it's time to exit, God is our light in order to lead us out. 
One of the meanings of light here is also dawn. I love that. It's like he's saying, God, you're my morning light. And salvation here means rescue in particular. You're my way out of here. David then releases his enemies saying, yes, my enemies seek to literally eat up my flesh, devour me like a bear. But he says in the end, it's they who will stumble and fall. Their sin and their own corruption will ultimately lead to their own demise. They will be found out. He says, yes, they might encamp around me even now, but my heart shall not fear. He says, in this, I will be confident. And I love the shift here. David models it to us here. Just like I said, I want to model this for my children. He models what to go after in a time like this. This gives us the know-how of what to be about in times of hardship. He gives us something clear here to focus on. I love it. Starting in verse four, he says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. As opposed to other things we might be tempted to seek after when someone has wounded us. He says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is David's bullseye. He is declaring that he does have a place of belonging as God's beloved, and it's in the house of God. And he says to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David is modeling that he's going to dwell or sit and remain in the presence of God. He's reminding himself and us of the vastness of God's house. It's a temple fit for a king, and it's beautiful and it's pleasant to be there. And he's saying, I'm going to gaze upon your beauty. Essentially, he's saying he's going to stop and stare. He's going to not take his eyes off of this beauty. This is sort of that face towards God in the heart postures that we covered, as if to say, God, where else would I go? My face is towards you, and so is my heart towards you. Verse 5 is so interesting and beautiful all at the same time. When I looked into this verse on the interlinear Bible, it read just like this, Of his tent in the secret shall he hide of trouble, for in the day in his pavilion he shall hide me, for he shall set me up on a rock. So before I go on, like I said before, the word of God alone over us just spoken is all that we need today. And anything I say here is just me trying to allow the Spirit of God to lead me into understanding of scriptures. So always, always go seek it out for yourself and don't take my word for it. But here's how it spoke to me. Again, I believe David is modeling what to do in troubled times and fearful times even. He's just like, one thing I will ask and I will seek, I just want to be near you. And then he's saying, when I choose to get near you in your house, here's what happens. He says, God, you hide me in your secret shelter. That phrase in the secret there is the Hebrew word sather. And when you initially look it up, the short definition of it says backbiting, which really threw me. Knowing that God isn't a backbiter, I, of course, had to dig around a little bit. It essentially means a covering or a hiding place in a good or bad, a literal or figurative sense. And here's what I took away from it. This secret place that God provides His people, it's actually being likened to the kind of secrecy that hosts backbiting. It's very much hidden and covert. 
And using this word, David is showing us just how hidden and secret this place is that he offers us. So secret and so covert that it's like where whispers happen. This is taking it one step further, and by no means do I think that this is what this text is specifically referring to, but I did have a thought. It's almost like we're able to see that, yeah, there might be a secret place where backbiting is born, but there's a secret place we can go where we will hear another kind of whispering, the whispers of the voice of God in that kind of secret place. So yeah, there might be a place where malicious ideas are formed in secret and plots are made for our demise, but it's almost like David reclaims that secret place for us. It's like, God, you created that secret. You are that secret. It belongs to you. And here is where you've covered me and hide me in your shelter. Shelter here literally means like a retreat for an animal, a lion's den or a thicket for a fawn. It's a retreat. And then I love that it says, in the day of my trouble, you look up that word there and it says day as opposed to night. So this tells me in the clear light of day, maybe even in front of my enemies, he conceals me under his tent. And then he lifts me up high on a rock. This leads me to believe that this is for all to see. This tells us that We need only to be quiet with confidence that God will not only rescue us and take us into the secret place where He will whisper what is true. I also believe that He will then, in broad daylight, make the truth known about us. This is especially comforting when we've asked the Lord to examine our hearts over and over, and we are trusting in Him to deliver us. I've read to you before from one of my favorite books on this subject that I've quoted, and I quoted a few minutes ago, The Tale of Three Kings by Jean Edwards. It suggests that there's very much an art form to learning how to respond to our enemies, some who might be spear throwers, in fact. I want to read to you out of chapter 7. Unlike anyone else in spear throwing history, David did not know what to do when a spear was thrown at him. He did not throw Saul's spears back at him, nor did he make any spears of his own and throw them. Something was different about David. All he did was dodge the spears. What can a man, especially a young man, do when the king decides to use him for target practice? What if the young man decides not to return the compliment? First of all, he must pretend he cannot see spears, even when they are coming straight at him. Second, he must learn to duck very quickly. Last, he must pretend nothing happened. You can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear. He turns a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret. He discovered three things that prevented him from ever being hit. One, never learn anything about the fashionable, easily mastered art Of spear throwing. Two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. And three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you, even when they pierce your heart. It's easy to see that David had been hit through the heart. The Psalms are full of David emoting. But who did he emote to? 
Can you imagine if every chapter in the Psalms was just, Dear Saul, <laughs> and it was just David spewing venom back at Saul? Or what if David had just spent his time rallying the people against Saul? Or worse, setting himself up as the king who would change it all? David did none of that. Instead, David retreated to the secret place. Verse 6 says, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. You have said, Seek my face. Verse 8, My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. There are many accounts of God addressing the people of God with the words, Seek my face. This was like David here just kind of raising his hand over in the corner and just saying, that's me. Here I am. I'm doing that now. Even if no one else is doing that, here I am, God. I'm seeking your face. That's going to be me. This is going to be my response to it all. There's so many things that I could do in this moment. I could build weaponry. I could learn the art of spear throwing and backbiting, or I can leave all of that to God and run back where I know the things I will hear will be true of me. In chapter 9 of the Tale of Three Kings, you learn that it's very easy to keep your eyes on your king Saul, the spear thrower, but that God very much has his eyes fixed on another king Saul. You basically get a mirror placed in front of you, and you begin to understand that God often uses the outer Saul to surgically remove from us the inner Saul. I love that in verse 11, David says, Because of my enemies, or on account of them, teach me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. This is David facing the Lord, but at the same time being careful to also, in that secret place, face himself in the mirror. He's like, let this hardship teach me something. Don't let it be for nothing. Don't just let me sit here in the secret place and lick my wounds. He's saying, teach me your way, God, and show me how to not end up like them, because apparently that's a thing. This last part, I believe, flows from what David just discusses with God, just like our heart postures and how they lead to the next posture. It gives us beautiful hope for us and says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. For some of you, that season is now. You're seeing the goodness of the Lord. Finally, after years of cave dwelling, you honestly thought this day would never come, but it's here. I believe this last part is still for you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The message version says, stay with God. I love that. This is like that season of consolation I was talking about earlier. Enjoy it. Sit with it. Savor and remain and thank Him. And guess what? I think this last part is also for you because I think it's you saying those words to others. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. You get to be the one to hold out hope for others, just like David did for us in this psalm. That last part when he says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take courage. You can be the voice of one calling from the land of goodness. You can testify to His goodness. You can spur us on in love. For many of you, you're still holding out belief that you'll see it one day. You know you'll see it on the other side. 
But David said, in the land of the living, which means this life's arena. You still haven't seen it this side. At least in this one area, maybe, where you are healing from the heart wound of a spear. I believe that last part of the song is for you too, obviously. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That word wait means kava. It means to wait, but it goes further in the word. It says twist or stretch, the tension of enduring. This is a verb here, and it's active, isn't it? We're sometimes being twisted and stretched in times of hardship. It also says a strand of a rope. So that's really beautiful, actually, especially since that next part says, be strong or he shall be strengthened. Imagine that you are being twisted and stretched, yes, during this time, but you're being twisted into the strength of a rope. This hardship isn't for nothing. It's strengthening you. So let your heart heal, yes, but also let it take courage. I'm going to leave you with the words to the song that I told you about earlier, the first song that Nathan and I ever wrote together. We were still dating. I was just 19, but I believe I was old enough to understand where to take my hurt, my misunderstandings, my hardships. I didn't know what I was doing then, but I was singing a new song to the Lord. I was echoing a psalm from thousands of years ago, but yet in my own words, I was saying to the Lord, here I am. I'm seeking your face. I'll leave you with the challenge today to sing a new song to the Lord of your own. Sometime in your journal over the next few weeks, write a new psalm unto the Lord. Sing it if you want to. Come up with a melody. The beauty of it is that it's your own. One of the seven Hebrew words for praise is tehillah, which means a hymn, a song of praise, but specifically a new song or a spontaneous song. In the book Holy Roar, written by my pastor, Darren Whitehead, he writes that a tehillah may not rhyme or even have a catchy tune. So there's hope for all of you non-singers and non-songwriters out there. But it says you can sing a new song into the Lord, and the notion here is that a tehillah is specifically just straight from your heart to the heart of God in the moment. It's a response to God out of your own personal story. So here's one of mine. Lord, you are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear if you are near? Lord, you are my peace when there is war all around me. Even here inside me, I will have no fear. O Lord, you're my protection from my enemies. You set me high upon a rock, and you defend my soul. And when their ways advance against me, I am confident that they cannot make me less, for you have made me whole. O Lord, you are my stronghold. You are my stronghold. Lord, you are my strength, so let my head be lifted up that I may glory in the ways you've overcome. And Lord, you are my hope, and you've created in me a heart that lives the victory that you've already won. O Lord, you're my protection from my enemies. You set me high upon a rock, and you defend my soul. And when their ways advance against me, I am confident that they cannot make me less, for you have made me whole. O Lord, you are my stronghold. You are my stronghold. 
I'll talk to you soon.